1: New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. BeautyCounter.com/Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show.
0: Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 99 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens.
2: Hi, everybody.
0: And I am not just here with Jen Stevens, we have a super special Epic guest that I'm very excited about today. We have Zach Bush, MD, on the podcast. He is just a wealth of information about the gut microbiome, about how the environment influences our health and well being, about just so many things. He knows so much about intermittent fasting to restore gut health and support health in general. So we are just, we're thrilled to have him today on the podcast. So, Zach, thank you so much for being here.
3: Melanie, thanks so much for having me. Please be with all of you in the audience as well.
0: Which is just really wonderful. I actually just listened really recently to you on the Ritual podcast, and I have a confession: I actually started, <laughs> I started crying at the end. It was so beautiful, everything that you were saying about health and healing, and just the potential for humanity. So it was really, really inspiring. And I'm hoping we can bring some of that inspiration to our audience today.
3: Lovely. I am glad to know I'm not the only one crying on a frequent basis. I, <laughs> I, I often move to tears by by the subjects that that we engage in these days. There's so much tragedy around us today, and there's so much opportunity around us today, and uh, the potential for uh, joyful rise of our consciousness and function is is just as poignant and just as powerful as as the crises and traumas that we're experiencing as a species right now. So. I think anybody who, who can be turned to the tears through human interaction and communication and conversation has their finger on on the pulse right now. So I, I applaud and I'm grateful for your awareness of it.
0: No, definitely. And actually, that's a really wonderful place to start. Well, first of all, would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your background and how you came to your current practice? I will say that you are a triple board certified physician, which is very, very impressive. So you have expertise in internal medicine, endocrinology, and metabolism, and hospice and palliative care. So that's a very impressive resume right there. Um, but we'd like to tell listeners a little bit about how you came to where you are now as far as your work with the environment, with your restore products, with everything that you're doing.
3: Yeah, uh, certainly not a linear journey. Nobody leaves undergrad thinking I want to do another 14 years of education. But I actually kind of despised test taking and the classroom environment in high school. And so it took me a while to decide to go to to medical school to begin with. And then once there, certainly didn't think I was going to go on to all that education. But the slippery slope that took me there evolved and revolved around the issue of trying to have a positive impact on my patients and for myself trying to find a sense of security in my knowledge base and feel like you know, I could really live up to that Hippocratic oath that I took as a physician at the time that I was initially graduated from medical school saying I was going to do no harm. And the longer I was a medical doctor, the, the more reality was striking me that I was doing almost only harm. I, I could very rarely point to an episode as a physician where I said, yeah, I really you know, led to some powerful impact on the long-term survival of that individual. We can have huge impact in the short term, and that can be qu- quite drug-like in its experience when we're first you know, doing hospital medicine. And we, we actually do kind of battlefield medicine quite well in Western medicine. You can see people come in with an acute heart attack or a traumatic fall or a car accident and crazy surgeries and inter- interventions can be done. You can crack somebody's chest and get their heart beating again. You can All this stuff makes it seem like we're having this huge positive healing, you know, intervention. But within a few years of being a physician, you start to realize that all of these dramatic, expensive, invasive procedures that we do very rarely have a measurable impact in the long run on that individual's, you know, health trajectory. And these heroic measures that we're often taking in the hospital setting, especially when it comes to chronic disease, are really a chasing after the wind. We're never really getting at the root cause of the problem by any of these fancy drugs or fancy surgical procedures or medical devices, insulin pumps, all of this that I was using as an endocrinologist. I felt like I was equipped with you know, almost godlike powers to change biology, and yet I was not seeing the effects in my patients as I would expect. And I was seeing people really suffering. And the more insulin I put them on, the more depression they faced, the more Drugs. I put them on. The worse their inflammation became. So it was just this vicious cycle that I felt like I was chasing. And so leaving internal medicine and going, or at least adding to the internal medicine education and going to endocrinology. I really thought, well, here's a a whole health and science based around natural hormones and our body's ability to regulate everything from metabolism and its production of fuel to its healing processes. And I really thought that was going to be my kind of do no harm pathway only to find out that if you use a human hormone exogenously, something like insulin is a great example, you can actually do more harm than good a lot of times. Or at least the, any small mark of good you do is often comes with some potent side effects because you're delivering that hormone in a very exogenous, unregulated fashion. And so it's not in concert or in cooperation with the complex endocrine system of hundreds of hormones, all doing this symphonic dance of balance and and uh, repair and regeneration and everything else. Instead, we have these sledgehammer approaches through the hormones that, that tend not to have the benefits we would expect. And so, again, turning my attention through this time through my research, I was determined to find some solutions through the nutrition world for cancer. And so I was studying... And developing chemotherapy from vitamin A compounds and working on that process, that got me into the study of nutrition. And as soon as I started to dive into nutrition, I realized I hadn't been taught anything in regard to human health and its relationship to the food that we eat. And that was sobering. It was a little bizarre to be that far, some 12 or 14 years into my journey, to find out that I hadn't been given this necessary foundation of knowledge. It was humbling and a little frustrating. And that led to ultimately my departure from the university setting in 2010. And I started my own nutrition center for reversing chronic disease in a little rural town of poverty uh, focus there in, in rural Virginia, trying to find a methodology or curriculum that would teach patients, even without financial resources, how to really take back their health identity and health independence through nutrition and their involvement in their food system. And that would ultimately lead me down the pathway of discovering the interaction of herbicides and pesticides with our biology and the role of the microbiome in helping us be resilient against those toxins, as well as the understanding of how our farming industry and agricultural systems are really undermining human health on a global scale.
0: Wow. So there's definitely... A lot going on there, and speaking to you mentioned the the pesticides and the role of the environment in our health. Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about that role? Because I think people really underestimate the like the really intense effect that that is having on our bodies. Because people see these pesticides and these GMOs, and they say, "Oh well, you know, they're they're marked as safe. How bad can they be?" You know how bad can they really be? So what are you seeing in your practice as far as how these compounds are affecting our bodies and our gut microbiomes and everything?
3: Yeah. So if we look at the population phenomenon that's happened in the last 30 years in the, in the United States, it really very poignantly demonstrates this relationship between the herbicides, pesticides, and the, the burden of chronic disease that we now see. The role of these weed killers really changed in the mid-1990s. And so. Roundup, the famous weed killer that is the most ubiquitous weed killer on the planet, its active ingredient is glyphosate. It's an organophosphate molecule. Originally, patent was awarded in 1959 to a Japanese researcher who discovered that. That patent was re-patented in the United States in 1976 or 74 by Monsanto. And then they would ultimately roll out in 76 kind of the product Roundup and all of that. And Roundup would become used extensively in not just the farming world, but actually even more aggressively often in the residential and and municipal settings of parks and streetscapes and driveways of home owners and backyards and the rest. And so during the 1980s, we started to really get exposed to this water-soluble toxin that was washing down our driveways into our water systems, invisible to our detection methods. And nobody was really aware that this stuff was dangerous because we were being told by the chemical industry, that these, this stuff was safer than water. And so that kind of hubris of, of the chemical industry really fell short of the reality that even by the late 80s, Monsanto themselves were publishing the cancer-causing effects of this molecule and the, the ability of this molecule to undermine biologic function.
0: Can I ask you really quickly, the tagline, safer than water,
2: how were they supporting that? I know, that jumped out to me as well. That sounds crazy that anyone would say that.
3: Yeah. And to give you a sense, it's even still happening. There was a recent situation, a large school board was considering outlawing Roundup from the school yard. And sitting on that in the audience happened to be a parent of one of the kids and he works for Monsanto. And this was just in this past six months. He was so vociferous and angry at any accusation that there was any harm in this molecule that in the end, his defense was that he would allow his kid to lick the grass after spraying Roundup on it you know, because he was so convinced of its safety. And that little testimony was enough to, to tip the school board into not taking any action and continue to use Roundup on, on the school property. And so it's these emotional, you know, non-science based, Things that the company has been spending decades kind of promoting and and these kind of emotional outpourings is if this chemical was dangerous, then we would know it by now because there would be a collapse of human health. Well, there has been a collapse of human health over the last 25 years, and it does correlate quite closely to the advent of this chemical being used directly on our food, which of course happened in 1996. And so it is a ridiculous stance. It is not backed by science. There is no science saying that it's safer than anything. And one of the problems with our whole USDA, EPA, and FDA, for that matter, is the the fox is always guarding the, the hen house in regard to the regulatory system here. These chemical companies literally will uh, spawn the leadership of these government regulatory bodies. And so the head of the FDA frequently is the former CEO or, or VP or some other executive director of pharmaceutical company X or Y go on in their FDA regulatory environment to approve some new drug from that company. You know, it's, it's just so insidious and so kind of incestuous in its nature in the way that the regulatory government system interacts with and shares personnel and belief systems with the chemical companies. So in the end, there is no safety data out there to suggest that this is safe, as safe as or anywhere near safe as anything naturally occurring, let alone water.
2: Can you talk a little bit about the effects that these chemicals have on the gut microbiome? I mean, for, for a lay person like me, it makes sense, you know, these, these products are designed to kill pests, and our gut microbiome is made up of lots of living creatures that are actually not pests. We, we need them. How does it relate?
3: Yeah. One of the ways in which the glyphosate molecule functions is to block an enzyme pathway that's present in bacteria, fungi, and plants. And this is one of the reasons why Monsanto was able to get away with saying that this thing is safe is because they would say, well, the, the human doesn't have any targets for this. They don't actually have this enzyme pathway that we're blocking with this molecule. But to say that some sort of functional target is the same as safety is totally erroneous. But So even though it's a, a flawed scientific rationale, they would often you know point to the rally of, okay, well, it blocks the shikimate enzyme pathway. And therefore, humans don't have that pathway, so it must be safe for humans. Well, it turns out that the shikimate enzyme pathway that's blocked is critical in the function of bacteria, fungi, plants, and humans indirectly. And so what the shikimate pathway does is produce what we call the essential amino acids. These are the building block constituents of proteins that would go on to build the infrastructure of our the cells that would build our body. They would build the enzymes. They would build the neurotransmitters. All kinds of different compounds within our body rely on these essential amino acids. They include things like phenylalanine, tyrosine, tryptophan, critical to hormone production, neuroendocrine function, serotonin, dopamine, all these coming from compounds that are precursored in this amino acid environment of the bacteria and the fungi and so now we're using this chemical roundup spraying it directly on our genetically modified food genetically modified crops coming out in 1996 were genetically modified so that they could handle the direct spraying of roundup on the plant this of course radically increased the amount of this water soluble toxin that was present in our food and the runoff from our farms into our water systems and so between 1996 and 2006, we see this radical increase in the usage of this molecule on genetically modified seeds and mature plants before harvest. The herbicide and pesticide kind of effects of many of these chemicals, even beyond Roundup, are usually focused on enzyme or cell signaling pathways. And so it turns out that Roundup has never been patented as a weed killer. Instead, it's patented as an antibiotic, antifungal, anti-parasite, goes on and on. And so the recognition that this thing kills the microbiome is age old. That'd be one thing if it just damaged soil architecture, because obviously if you destroy the bacteria in the microbiome of the soil, you destroy the nutrient density of the food that would grow in that soil, and therefore you would eliminate nutrient density from the foods that the humans and our animals would eat. And that indeed has happened over this course. We're now deficient in many of those essential amino acids and the alkaloids, which are the medicines within our food, the antidepressant compounds, the anti-cancer compounds, the anti-hypertensive compounds, the neurotransmitter modulators that are all in this family of alkaloid medicines have all been eliminated by Roundup. And so we've eliminated the building blocks for life, the proteins, and we've eliminated the medicines for any disorders that would come from the lack of that nutrition through one chemical. And so this glyphosate molecule is really undermining health at multiple levels. And then when it finally touches the gut lining, we see this nuclear explosion of extracellular structure where we see the whole matrix that plugs billions of epithelial cells into a single coherent barrier system called the gut lining suddenly blows apart and you get this huge leaky sieve effect where you've got this unregulated intestinal permeability where the gut is no longer the largest barrier to the outside world. It's now welcoming in any compound you you eat, both organic and inorganic chemicals and the rest can no longer be kept out and you've got this constant barrage on the immune system of overwhelm of all these compounds that should not have been absorbed into the body getting in there. Furthermore, it undermines your ability to pull water across that healthy gut membrane. And now with that leaky gut, you've got chronic irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea, all kinds of dysfunctional things going on because you've lost the ability to traffic water across that barrier system effectively. And so now you have a dehydrated patient, which of course accelerates everything from muscle loss to immune function, destruction, and the rest.
0: So to synthesize everything you said, basically, so they're marketing it as safe because they're saying it doesn't directly affect the enzymes in our body. But what it does is it's affecting everything that lives in our ecosystem in our body, which supports our health. It's also depleting nutrients and it is directly affecting our gut and encouraging leaky gut. So it in, in reality, it is directly affecting our health as well. Wow. That's a lot.
3: Yeah, <laughs> that's, a,
0: that's a lot going on there. And so what can we do besides, I mean, you know, consuming, personally consuming organic produce and food, even though I know even that is still likely tainted with Roundup because it is so pervasive in the environment and water-soluble. But as far as, like, focusing on healthy food and organically grown food, what else can we do environmentally and personally to address the damage? And, like, is it too late? Are we irrevocably damaged from Roundup and in our gut microbiome and our our gut systems? Or can we heal?
3: Yeah, lots of good questions there. So we'll tackle kind of what can we do environmentally to, to do this, you know, repair this situation. I think that biology is super resilient. I think I, I see on a daily basis in my clinic that you know, people can heal from unbelievable amount of damage. And so I believe the ecosystem is capable of a large amount of recovery. I don't think that we can get back to a microbiome and ecosystem balance that we had 60 years ago. I think we've driven to extinction tens of thousands of species over the last 50 years, and we're never going to get those back. And so we've done some irreparable damage to the ecosystem, undoubtedly. I think a lot of those species that have died were in the soil and water systems that were exposed to the highest levels of these chemicals, not just Roundup, but things like atrazine and all kinds of other chemicals. There's 64 other herbicides and pesticide chemicals present in like a a typical glass of wine from California, Um, you know, not just Roundup. So 64 chemicals, if you can wrap your head around that, you know, I I study every day the the massive impacts of one. But now you compound that with 63 other toxic compounds. A simple glass of wine is no longer, you know, a pleasurable imbibing of a little alcohol. You're literally drinking a chemical soup in a glass of wine. So, it, you know, it's just unbelievable. So what can we do? So what, what we have to do is we need to change agriculture at, at, at the big, big level. It's one thing on the personal level that I think is important to grow a little bit of your own food. So grow a garden, can your foods, do a little bit of fermentation in the home, make your own sauerkraut, make some kimchi, get engaged with your food on, on a lot of levels is a huge step one personally. But until we really start to, through our consumer behavior, change the macro, big scale farming, we're not going to succeed. And so, in realizing that over the last few years, my colleagues and I have been working very hard to launch a new nonprofit, uh, which actually officially launches to the public tomorrow. So, February 12th, uh, you can check this out. And uh, this podcast may be ha- uh, publishing at a Point quite a bit past February twelfth, so it should be available to you when you hear this. But the website's farmersfootprint.us, and this is our documentary series around this topic. And the documentary series is our first call to action to support our larger nonprofit that's doing farm education. It's supporting. Both consumer and farmer education, supporting research and development for the farmers, as well as grant support, direct financial support for their farms to make the technological investments to make the transition not to organic farming, but actually to something called regenerative agriculture, which is a a major step forward from the current organic practices done around the country. And so we're very, very excited about this nonprofit. We're on track with our relationships to convert 5 million acres of U.S. farmland to regenerative agriculture and completely change the soil and water systems of our, our Mississippi River tributaries, which uh, collect some 80, 85% of the Roundup in the country. And so yeah, we were very excited to see the impact of these regenerative acres start to clean up our environment. And the exciting thing is that not only do we recover soil architecture in the first year we ultimately start to reabsorb co2 out of the atmosphere very rapidly in these repaired soils and so we really have the opportunity not just to improve soil health but to actually improve air health and and reduce the co2 uh, impact on global warming through just man- healthy management of our soil systems so that's what we can all start to participate in we've partnered with a lot of the age old groups out there, including the Rodale Institute, the Savory Network that's worked extensively in Africa and in the developing world to recover native grasslands. We're working with the Kiss the Ground out of LA. We're working with agrarians out of in Australia. So great orgs across the world are partnering with us to get this educational and direct farmer support channeling on. We really believe that direct relationship of consumers to farmers can bypass all of the political and bureaucratic BS that has shaped farmers' behavior and put them in a codependent, dependent relationship to banks and loans and all of these extensive inputs that they're supposed to always be buying to try to keep their dead soils producing. And so we're very, very inspired by... The resilience of these farmers, we really want to hurry up and support them. The farmers in the United States have one of the highest suicide rates in the world. The stress that they've been under over the last two decades is really unprecedented. And we really want to see that stem through not just financial support, but really a community outcry to these farmers to say, we see you. We recognize the importance you have in the survival of our children and our planet at large. We support you wholeheartedly, and we want to join you not just financially, but in spirit and in encouragement to say we value your commitment to make this difficult and and exciting transition to a real regenerative process on your farms.
2: Well, I love that, and I love the wording regenerative agriculture because that just sounds... So positive, like we know, we're we're changing things for the better, regenerating the soil, regenerating you know the nutrients. That's powerful.
3: We sit right on the bubble right now. I I think that either we're going to be extinct in the next seventy years, or we're going to change absolutely everything. We're going to change our consumer behavior. We're going to change the the products that we bring into our households. We're going to change the way in which we use plastics on the planet. We're going to change the way in which. We recycle and, and reuse the resources within plastics and the like. We're going to change our relationship to energy itself and the and the manufacturing of energy. And we're going to change our, our you know raping of, of the earth, of its fossil soils and, and minerals, and really start living a regenerative consumer lifestyle that would, would affect all areas far beyond agriculture and really to live differently. At the same time, there's an optimism in me because in my clinic, I see people that are on the trajectory towards death and come to this transformative moment when they realize they are connected to all the universe, they're connected to all health, they're connected to all the knowledge they would need to transform not only who they are, but what they are in this moment. And and in that moment they can can go on a completely different track and spend decades of improved life and health and go do something completely different with their lives. And I think that we could do that as a species as well. We could choose to take this pivotal moment to change direction and transform and rebirth in the body instead of waiting for the afterlife.
2: Yeah, that's what I'll vote for. I'll vote for transforming it and not just <laughs> not the decline of, of the species.
3: <laughs> I hope so too.
2: Me too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so it kind of sounds like a metaphor in a way for intermittent fasting as well, because when you think about something like intermittent fasting, you are going through this not a death period, but you're going through a period, you know, where you are withdrawing, you're breaking down, you know, with autophagy, broken things in the body, and then you are coming back ultimately stronger and rebuilding. So would you like to talk a little bit about the role of fasting and health and how that relates to everything in your perspective?
2: Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there is no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data, and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. You can also view stock collections, such as 100 Most Popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast a free stock, like Apple, Ford, or Sprint. To help you build your portfolio sign up at ifpodcast.robinhood.com
3: you're spot on i think not only is it a metaphor i think it's literally what we're being called to if you look into the religious practices that have been taught for thousands of years across almost every religion on earth fasting has been part of that and it's always referred to as a rebirth period and so i think fasting is exactly that it is our opportunity for real transformation and where transformation always happens is when there's enough silence to listen or enough attention to pay attention and change intention. And so uh, fasting is a literal process of creating silence in the gut and the adjacent immune system. And so an 18-hour fast is a powerful way to give your body the rest it needs to not only deal with all the incoming traffic of nutrients and turn that into healthy metabolism, it's also an opportunity to catch up on immune system damage and, and structural damage done to the body as that food was taken into the body, absorbed, processed. The chemicals in a in a fast food hamburger, there was an article that came out almost 30 years ago now, I guess it was. Sometime in the 1990s when I was in training, there was an article that came out on the, the chemical residues that are in a typical McDonald's hamburger and The biology of the clearance of that uh, takes about seven years. So it takes seven years to clear the body of the toxins of one hamburger. You do the math on that and you start to think, well, I don't eat any McDonald's. But then you realize, well, no, but the same beef going into that McDonald's hamburger is the same thing going into the restaurant food that I'm eating. No matter what the quality of the restaurant, ultimately, uh, you're going to be getting some of those compounds. I mentioned the glass of wine. A single glass of wine, you're getting all 64 different herbicides and pesticides that are going to take you years to figure out how to break down and clear from your liver and body. And so we we are desperately in need of catch-up. We need this silent period of the gut to start to turn the table on this toxin kind of absorption and stockpiling that the body is capable of and give it time to release. Release the toxins, allow for deep cleansing to happen. I'm sure you guys have covered autophagy many times. So I don't want to go into any major detail on it, but it is one of the more fascinating parts of science that we have the mechanisms within us to do apoptosis, which is programmed cell suicide to wipe out the whole cell or autophagy, which is to clean up the inside of the cell, damaged genes, damaged proteins, all the like damage from mitochondria within the cell. All of these suddenly go into a cleanup, deep vacuuming process. And so, Both autophagy and apoptosis kick in in days four and five of the water fast, typically. So I do a lot of longer-term fasting as well in my clinic. But intermittent fasting is a great way to get your body into the ability to burn fat from the liver and and, uh, kind of the visceral fat compartment where we store most of the toxins in our body. And so to start to really mobilize that and and perfect the enzymatic pathways necessary for gluconeogenesis or sugar production from the fat cells or ketosis, all these important pathways are triggered by both the short-term and longer fasting experiences. And so I love it. Yeah, you're really describing perfectly, not just the transformation, but this this opportunity for catch-up, this opportunity for silence and rest and and regeneration.
2: So do you yourself follow an intermittent fasting lifestyle, like with the daily eating window approach or something like that?
3: I do, but um, I'm a huge fan of not doing that constantly. Uh, So I'm a huge fan of switching in and out of the intermittent fasting pattern. So typically we'll, we'll teach something like a week on, then a week off.
0: People find different intermittent fasting patterns that work for them. Some people do seem very comfortable in doing it daily. Others seem to prefer, you know, more alternate day approaches or like you said going maybe week on, week off. I know like for me personally when I was combining intermittent fasting with a lower carb approach and wasn't, you know, refilling those carbohydrate stores and stuff like that, I would see actually much higher fasted blood sugar. And that was just for me. But then I found that once I changed what I was eating and started eating more carbs for in my personal eating window, also probably elongating my window a little bit at night, that that actually addressed my blood sugar issues. So I guess we're all like very, very individual and very unique.
3: I would say that's spot on. I, I think that would actually be pretty generalized to the population. If you can lengthen the, your window and increase carbs, you're going to help with that ketone escape.
0: Yeah. So I think it's really, cause we get a lot of questions from listeners trying to find, you know, the right intermittent fasting pattern that works for them. And like I said, some people settle in and they seem to be good for the long haul and they don't really have any pushback that they can tell from their body. But others, it does seem like it can become a little bit of a chronic stress if they're not properly addressing all of their body's needs. And we're just all so unique. So it's really wonderful to hear that. Intermittent fasting is so beneficial with everything you were discussing and that it is possible to make it work for you in the way that it should. And I'm really, I'm really happy that you know about we get so many questions about autophagy and apoptosis. And I know we do talk about it a lot on the podcast, but since you are sort of an expertise on that, I would like to hear a little bit more about that just because we do get so many questions. So do you see autophagy happening even on the shorter fast? So like a 16 hour fast? Like a lot of people do, you know, a 16 8. Do you see that process starting within that time period?
3: I haven't seen compelling data out there, and that does not mean it's not out there at all. That, that data may exist. I just haven't seen it. The, the data that I've seen a lot of and, and have participated in is, is the data around that five-day fast period. Like You go past 72 hours, there's a biologic switch that throws in at, at that point where you've now run out of glucose storage in the form of glycogen at the liver and the brain, And now you're somewhere between 48 and 72 hours fully reliant upon gluconeogenesis from fat to produce the sugar that would be needed and used by the system. During that same period of time and probably linked to the hormonal changes that happen in that moment is when we start to see the mobilization or or production of the vacuoles or these envelopes that are produced within your cells to start the process of autophagy autophagy if you break down the latin there is you know self-eating and so when you self-eat what you're consuming in the case of autophagy is damaged material inside of the cell mitochondria i think are among the most common stuff that you would find in autophagy vacuole or envelope and so you'd find damaged enzymes damaged protein structures mitochondria might see some of the the damaged infrastructure of the Golgi apparatus and other structures within the cell that are prone to oxidative damage. Phospholipid membrane can be damaged by a lot of the common free radicals that we see in the environment or caused by environmental exposure. The hydroxyl free radical being one of those most common ones to induce injury at lipid membranes. And so not only would that damage the mitochondria, but other parts of the cell. And so these damaged parts start to get vacuumed up. And so somewhere in that two to three days is where that that vacuole production really kicks in. I think if you got an individual that was capable of tripping into that sooner, they would have to have a very, very lean, lean liver. And so if you were able to run your, your liver out of glycogen within 16 hours, I could imagine a scenario where you could accelerate that process.
2: If I could jump in real quick. We find that actually people who live an intermittent fasting lifestyle for a a good period of time, you know, who do follow the daily eating window approach, even when consuming carbs in our eating windows, we don't fully refill the stored glycogen in our liver. So we do actually get to the point where we are getting into ketosis during the fast, maybe around hour 14, hour 16, hour 18. Of course, it depends on what you're eating and your level of physical activity, but people do find that they're getting in, into that state because we've depleted our liver glycogen over time. You know, if you if you start with completely full liver glycogen stores on day one and just start fasting, yeah, it's going to take, you know, three days <laughs> to get through all those. But we find that over time, we take out a little bit more every day than we put in. So we eventually do get into that state.
3: I think that's probably likely. I, keep in mind that ketone production is not the same as being out of, out of out of glycogen, though.
2: No, but when you when you're sufficiently low enough in your liver, when your when your liver glycogen is low enough, I mean, obviously you've still got glycogen stored in your muscles. You're not running out yeah. of there.
3: <laughs> Muscle and brain, yeah, yeah. And so you've got some glycogen stored throughout the body. You see this with training, and, and yeah, I was lecturing a couple years ago at the, the low carb USA conference and speaking there to, you know, some of the real forefathers of the concept of intermittent fasting and, and longer term fasting, as well as the high fat, low carb diets. And, you know, the reality is the majority of them have found over time that as good as they think they feel, if you do neurocognitive testing, your brain's not working as well as you would hope on chronic fasting patterns. And there is some rationale to coming in and out of that. Process, So, you know, I think what I can say with confidence is we are brand new as a field. We're very, you know, neophytes and understanding, you know, all of the variables that go into this. And so I think that the biohacking community is doing the right thing by looking at each body as an individual, you know, complex system and take this and your own data and try to do it. But unfortunately, that's complicated by a lot of pseudoscience and half science that's out there in this industry because there's been a lack of funding. For good research to be done and so that, that's hopefully you know my, my company and my, my basic science lab hope to be kind of a bridge for that in the long run but I think we've got decades ahead of us before we really start to tease out all of the variables that would be involved in that relationship between fasting, immune system rest, autophagy, ultimately apoptosis and programmed cell suicide and cancer cells and the like and then moving out to more complex things like neurologic stress, neurotransmitter production, where do you get the best serotonin dopamine reserves? You know, all of these things have yet to be answered.
0: Yeah, That's one of the themes I picked up on from many of the guests that we've had on our podcast is that we see just anecdotally these different practices really working for people and then there's just a need, honestly, for you know, research and studies to actually go in and look at the mechanisms behind all of it. I know we we talked about that a lot with Dr. Ken Brown recently, also with dry farm wines, which I was going to just bring that up because I, I guess now listeners will understand where the dry part comes in for that. Do you work? Do you work with them at all?
3: Yes, I know them well.
0: Yeah. So, so now for listeners, you might understand why the dry part is important of dry farm. It's because they're not using. The water irrigation in the wineries, which would also be saturating further the grapes and those environmental toxins that are water soluble. Tangent, (laughs) but just a little fun fact. But yeah, we're definitely seeing that across the board because we know that you know these fasting practices are working for people and people are experiencing benefits. And now it's just we just need a paradigm shift where we can actually start, you know, studying the mechanisms behind that. But it's just hard to there's not really money behind fasting, you know, like behind not eating, who's going to profit from that. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's definitely a much needed paradigm shift. I would like to hear a little bit about your Restore supplement that you have formulated because I, I've been taking that for a while actually. When I first heard about you, I mean, it was a while ago. How long have you had that product?
3: First developed it in 2013 and was using it just in my clinic. It started with my all my cancer patients because I was not seeing the reality of those molecules well I, I was my brain was still stuck in in my chemotherapy development days but by 2014 we had figured out that uh, this thing these molecules made by the bacteria and fungi were, were doing stuff way upstream of where cancer cells would be and they were really working in this environment of protein production and, and natural protein folding and all this stuff in the extracellular matrix of the gut and the kidneys the blood-brain barrier and the like
0: Okay, yeah, because I think I started using it for the first time probably around 2016 or so. So it was available to the public then? Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. I think it was like right around, yeah, because I probably first heard about it about then, and I currently have had it in my cupboard for a while now. How does it work to help restore gut health? And also if you could discuss how it would affect being taken in the fasted state, what it would do.
3: So uh, the molecules I discovered in 2012 was actually in a soil science paper that I was reading, and they looked remarkably similar to some of the chemotherapy I used to make at the University of Virginia. And so that was the aha moment. Started studying those molecules in soil to find out that they were made by bacteria and fungi was the aha moment for me, because by this time, 2012, we had started to see a ton of data coming out of many universities showing that there was a huge correlation between changes in the microbiome of our gut and our propensity towards any number of cancers, down to the level that we could tell that if you lost these bacteria, you were going to be prone to breast cancer. If you lost these bacteria, you'd be prone to prostate cancer and the like. And so this huge correlation between the microbiome and cancer occurrence was becoming very well established, but nobody had started to understand how that was possible. What, what was the causation rather than just this correlation in, in microbiome and cancer? And so the the answer that, you know, or the realization that bacteria and fungi could make molecules capable of cellular communication like my chemotherapy had been working around was the aha moment of, oh my gosh, if you have an intact microbiome, you've got all this communication pumping out of the biology to make sure that cancer doesn't occur. And so our ability to prevent cancer is a naturally occurring God-given gift through the relationship of the microbiome and the human biology. And so our supplement process that we put into play over the next two years was can we figure out how to get those molecules in mass and in variety out of fossil soils where we know we had a much much denser microbiome in the soils that dated with the era of the dinosaurs the dinosaur extinction that was last major extinction on earth occurred through a death of the topsoil an asteroid hit and layered a huge layer of dust across the surface of the earth we got a a lack of oxygen into the soil, we had this breakdown of the normal ecology of the soil, and we lost that vitality of life and biology on Earth, and so a huge extinction event happened. Over the subsequent millions of years, obviously, we rebuilt much of that ecosystem, but never to the levels that we had 60 million years ago. And so even today, you can't find topsoil levels that, that can rival those that we saw back in the day. And so that's where we turned our attention was to the ability to get these molecules out of soil. The challenge, of course, was that these molecules, after sitting in the soil for 50 million years, were not in a biologically active state. They were highly oxidized, meaning the hydrogen and electrons had been torn off these large carbon molecules over the millennia. And so when you take soil supplements and you put them into kidney tubules, uh, which are our main safety study methodology or We also study them extensively in liver cells and intestinal lining cells, as well as the blood-brain barrier endothelium. In all of these different environments, the compounds pulled from soil are very oxidative or damaging and actually increase cell death through all of those different cell types. And so our challenge was to get the redox state or the oxygen-hydrogen-electron relationship back into a biologically active state as it would have been 60 million years ago. And so we've used a series of mineral baths and, and mineral catalysts to get that hydrogen to rebond to the oxygen moieties uh, within these carbon molecules. And you end up with this communication network capable of releasing and, and bonding hydrogen and electrons with it. You end up with this really neat kind of domino system that can translate information from one cell to the next, or probably even more importantly, in the extracellular matrix between the cells. This functional communication network proceeds to trigger all of your natural born capacity. And so an aging cell or a damaged cell has simply lost its communication network and doesn't know how to repair anymore. So it sits there stagnant and accumulating damage. A repairing or healing cell has enough access to information that it can either bring in all of the repair mechanisms it needs. It can produce from its DNA every single cell structure that could possibly be damaged It can rebuild cell membrane, enzyme pathways, cellular structures, the extracellular matrix itself. But if we start to kill the microbiome, we start to lose the ecosystem at large, we start to lose the communication network, stagnancy and vulnerability set in. And so Restore is simply giving back that microbiome communication network that we would see in a normal, healthy gut microbiome-infused body.
0: And so taking Restore... It seems like such a simple question, but if we take it during the fasted state, would that quote break the fast? We get that question all the time about so many things. So will that take you out of a fasted state?
3: Oh, not at all. In fact, it'd probably speed up a lot of the processes you're hoping to do. So it certainly supports apoptosis. We've shown very clearly in a lot of different cell types that we can improve your capacity for apoptosis. We markedly improve the reactive oxygen species response in mitochondria. We markedly improve mitochondrial metabolism markedly improve glutathione synthesis, which is your antioxidant pathways to clean up your your disordered systems. And so it restores, supports every pathway that you'd be hoping to turn on in a fast. In addition, there's no bacteria or fungi or any caloric source in there. There's no sweeteners. There's no chemical preservatives. It really is entirely derived from soil and water. And so the compound is very effective and safe to use throughout a fast and certainly has no mechanism to break the hormonal pattern that you would experience during a fast.
0: Oh, okay, Perfect. And I will say, having personally taken Restore, that it has really no taste to it. <laughs> I mean, it's not really going to throw off any of your, your taste buds or anything like that. It, it tastes very much similar to water. It's like a brown water.
3: And that's one of the ways in which it's often taken during a fast is we always encourage hydration protocols during fasting. And so uh, adding some Restore to your water can improve the biologic availability of that water when you're trying to hydrate during a fast.
0: Okay, perfect. So for listeners, Restore is definitely a wonderful a supplement that you can add to your fast to, I mean, just hearing you talk about it, Zach, really help heal and support the health of your body on so many levels. And I mean, it's kind of crazy because with me taking it, it seems so benign and so gentle, you know, (laughs) like you're, you're taking it thinking what, you know, what is this actually doing? But in a way, I think that sort of goes with the intermittent fasting lifestyle and the fact that just supporting healing and health by not going crazy, but rather by being calm and quiet and letting the body naturally restore and naturally achieve the states of health that are, that are possible to it.
3: Very good. Yep.
0: So I was actually wondering, Zach, (laughs) if you could retell the story that you told at the end of the Rich Roll podcast about when you're working in the ER you said you had that one night with the the three people. I was wondering, story time, I was wondering if you could tell that story because that just really, really affected me. And I would love to share that with listeners because I thought it was really motivational.
3: Yeah, so I was recounting um, one of the, my evenings in the ICU when I was a senior resident in uh, University of Virginia at the time. And we do a fair number of resuscitations over the course of a residency. You do so much time in a hospital, you see a lot of cardiac arrest and so we end up pumping drugs in putting people on a ventilator and and trying to get their heart and respiratory systems restarted and our success rate is pretty pathetically low. It's In a hospital setting, it's typically about 6% of people will be resuscitated to the point where they have some cognitive function, recover, and 94% will either not resuscitate at all or go on to a vegetative state and then die quickly thereafter. So our success rate is low, and so it was quite remarkable when I had an evening where I had multiple codes and three of these resuscitation events led to uh, a full neurologic recovery where we could speak with the patients for the, the coming days and weeks and so in that experience you know completely unexpected i really got an incredible window into the near death experience and while i had had different versions of this you know here and there over the course of my years before that i had never had such a poignant you know single night of all of these events and they all came back with such a similar experience they came back with first a lot of agitation when they woke back up there's a lot of agitation two out of the three asked immediately you know why did you bring me back because they had just experienced incredibly beautiful peaceful Experience that then reversed into this you know, traumatic experience of being in isolated in an ICU, covered in synthetic tubes, pushed into every orifice, and rectal tubes, and fully catheters into the bladder, and IVs in the arms, and central lines in the neck, and you know just plastic drapes, all the junk that you're know, surrounded by. And not to mention the just pain and discomfort of being in that setting was such a contrast to the to what they had just experienced, and the description of all three, came down to this one sentence that was so unexpected when I heard it the first time. And when I heard it three times, it was just, I knew that the universe was speaking to me at that point as a, to hear it over and over again. But they each described the experience of being completely accepted. And that's hard to wrap your mind around, but they each had this experience of going into this silent space where they suddenly felt Entirely accepted for who they were meaning. There was no judgment of their shortcomings their insecurities there They simply felt fully accepted recognized appreciated And then of course their next you know descriptions would go into this experience of being loved and this this sense of love And I feel like as a human being I've got a, a real good sense of love I've got a real good sense of what it feels like to be loved and I, I'm getting a sense of what it feels like to love my children for example I can't go into a very clear description of that, what love is for me or what it is, but I I certainly can bring myself to that kind of experience in my own life. But the experience of being accepted was profound and much different. And it really highlighted how the fact is all three of these individuals coming from completely different backgrounds, a gentleman dying from complications of AIDS, and the HIV virus, a gentleman dying from end-stage congestive heart failure, a pastor of an African-American church, and then a little a young kid dying at 18 from complications of a genetic disorder. Totally different human beings, totally different backgrounds, totally different personalities. You know, one of them super grumpy and gruff and, and angry at the world. Another totally benevolent, you know, joyful pastor surrounded by a massive accepting and loving community and huge family. And then this kid surrounded by his fellow high school students and, and all of this as he was dying. And yet all of them to be so struck with the experience of being accepted really highlighted to me how we're all walking around with a really desperate sense of unacceptance. And we don't feel accepted. We don't feel seen. And that's pretty profound. And it has informed me as to kind of what i need to be doing in my own life how i need to be speaking to people i meet i need to be sincere in my address of people i need to be less surfacy in my social interactions instead of just saying hey how are you and accept i'm fine instead ask what have you been doing the last month what's what's really been the most exciting stuff in your life Wh- which ways have you been interacting with nature what are you what are your favorite ways to exercise what what kind of breath work have you been doing? You know, like really get into it with people as to what is their experience of being alive right now. And in that, you can invariably find huge acceptance of not just them, but ultimately of yourself too. You can forgive yourself so much if you just listen to the journey of somebody else and reflect on how blessed you are and how how much you've changed in the years because you'll hear people suffering through or struggling with, issues you long ago resolved, and you'll find people struggling with the exact same issues you're struggling with today. And in that, I think we can find a huge sense of acceptance of self as well as our fellow humans.
0: Yeah, that is just so powerful and so beautiful and really resonates with me. And I think I think it's so important, especially for our listeners and for everybody, because, for example, with intermittent fasting, people often come to that from like the diet culture. And it's all this journey to, or this intense need to lose weight in order to be accepted for yourself or how you think others perceive you. I mean, you were talking about the need to be seen. I think so many people struggle with the fear of being seen as well, because we just are not, we don't feel okay in our bodies and we don't feel okay as who we are. When really there could be such a paradigm shift. And I just, I just really want to encourage everybody to just embrace that mentality of acceptance and love and knowing that everything you're doing can be okay. Like you are okay as you are. Yeah. I just think that is just so powerful. And I think it really, really, it really resonates with me and is really what I'm trying to encourage for everybody. So thank you. Thank you so much for bringing that.
2: And I have I have a question for you. Did you say you went to UVA med school?
3: Uh, I went to the University of Colorado for med school, and then I was at the University of Virginia for all my postdoctoral work.
2: I just wondered if you had ever come across, since you were talking about near-death experiences, if you'd ever come across Dr. Ian Stevenson. Sure. Yeah. I, I read a, you know, a bunch of his work, you know, several years ago, and... Was fascinated by his his research and what he was doing, but when you mentioned near death experiences and UVA, I was like, "Huh." Yeah, he would <laughs>
3: definitely come up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, his personal journey has been extraordinary. So,
2: did you ever meet him? Did you know him?
3: Yeah, I've talked to him a couple times.
2: Fascinating. Does he have books? Yeah, he did research on reincarnation and uh, past lives. It was he was a skeptic who. Fell into this accidentally, but (laughs) fascinating stuff.
3: Yeah, definitely worth looking him up. Sure. Good one.
0: Fascinating. (laughs) Well, for listeners... So this has been absolutely wonderful. So we will have show notes for this episode at ifpodcast.com slash episode 99. And on that page, I will put links to everything. So there'll be links there to the Restore supplement that Dr. Zach has formulated that I absolutely love. And like I said, super healing, super supportive of health in general and helping to restore our bodies um, to a state of health despite all of the, the attacks we are facing from our environment and our lifestyles. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I'll put a link to congratulations tomorrow in advance on your foundation. Is it, you said it was a foundation?
3: Yep. Nonprofit there. Yep.
0: That's really exciting. Tomorrow must be a big day then.
3: It is. We're excited for the farmers. It's going to be big.
0: Super exciting. So we'll put links to all of that as well. Also to more information about Zach and his work and everything else. And is, is there anything else you'd like to get out to listeners?
3: So much more, but uh, I think our time's up, but uh, the ZachBushMD.com website is my educational platform, and so I speak to everything from biohacking to spirituality and biology and many different avenues through that website, so Zach Bush MD can get you a lot more if you want to go down that rabbit hole. Awesome.
0: That's wonderful. Well, I thank you so much for all the work you're doing. And it's so wonderful to see somebody like you who synthesizes the environmental needs, the, the physical needs, the biological needs, but then also under this mindset and this viewpoint that brings in the, you know, the greater spiritual understanding and where we're going as a species and humanity. So I really, really appreciate everything that you're doing.
3: Awesome. Well, I appreciate you all for keeping the, the public discussion going in such a positive direction. So thank you all listening as well for your time and interest.
0: of course, and hopefully we will collaborate soon in the future and have a wonderful day tomorrow with your your big day.
3: (laughs) Thanks so much. Take care.
0: All right. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember, the opinions we discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice. We're not doctors. Check out ifpodcast.com for more information on us theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.